This is Lunch Pail VC, presented by Bullpen Capital. Each week, host Randy Comisar and I, Paul Martino, go deep into the nuts and bolts of all aspects of the venture capital business. And no, we don't ice the kicker, but we do give you a no-bull look into the VC business. We talk with exceptional VCs about all sorts of topics, including deal sourcing, deal selection, selection of your fund size, just to name a few. Welcome back to another edition of Lunch Pail VC, where there is no fleece allowed. We give you the no-bull look at the industry of venture capital. I'm one of your hosts, Paul Martino, managing partner of Bullpen Capital, along with my friend and co-host, the Earl of Early Stage Investing, Mr. <laughs> Randy Comisar from Kleiner Perkins. Hey, Paul. It's great to be back and talk about the nuts and bolts of venture capital some more. Today's guest is Charles Hudson of Precursor Ventures, and we're going to talk about investing in pre-seed states, some of the challenges of being a solo GP and other things that Charles sees that others in the industry don't necessarily have to see as a result. Right. And both of those topics, being a solo GP, investing as early as pre-seed, they're, they're, they're really interesting to understand, especially if you're an entrepreneur trying to understand the business of venture capital. I've known Charles for years. He's a great Great sense of both of these categories. He knows how to hustle. He knows how to grind. He knows how to source those new deals literally at the earliest stage. Well, and, and Charles is very explicit about where Precursor falls in the Bill Campbell's buckets. Um, they're people pickers. In fact, on Precursor's website, under its portfolio page, you won't find company logos. You actually see photos of their founders. And it's great. I mean, it's really a slice of life. One of the core principles is people market product right and and that's with that's with greater than arrows in between them and I, i'm sure you can't do pre-seed investing without literally being a people picker because i mean what else are you going to look at at that point you have to have maximum faith in the person to be able to write a check at that stage and on that note we're going to hear more from one of the masters of this mr charles hudson welcome to lunch pail vc oh guys thanks for having me this is a real honor yeah, pleasure as we said in the intro, investing at pre-seed, man, I almost don't know how you do it. It just seems like jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. So, so talk to me about it. Talk to me what it means to you. The word seed, pre-seed, post-seed are always so complicated. So talk to us about where you invest the stage and what it's like to go super early. Yeah, well, I think it's always funny that we even have a term pre-seed at the end of the day. <laughs> I used to think, you know, when I started, seed was as early as you could go. And then, you know, folks like... Manu Kumar and Tim Connors sort of pushed the frontier. I think what I realized, um, so I've been doing precursor now since about the middle of 2014 is when I really got started. And what I quickly realized is there were a ton of really experienced, talented seed firms that had raised bigger funds and they were gravitating towards a different set of criteria for investing. Uh, they were really looking for companies that maybe had some recurring revenue already, had a product they could touch and feel. And I just felt like, gosh, there's so many great founders that I was meeting who just, they, they weren't there yet. They had a really strong idea. They had high conviction about what they wanted to build. They were really fired up to build it. And they didn't need a two to $3 million seed round, which back then, Paul's, you know, that was a big seed round back yeah, then. Right. Uh, they didn't need that. They needed 500K or a million bucks to, to prove it out. 
And they would go talk to bigger seed firms that were, you know, north of 100 million bucks. And those firms would say, it's just not worth my time to write a 250K check. Why don't you come back to me when you've solved for some of the things that I really want to see? And I just felt like there was an opportunity there to work with those people. And when I look back on my investing career, a lot of the best investments I'd made were companies that had very little to no traction, but where I just had really high belief and conviction that those people would figure it out. And where I felt like capital was really the impediment. And kind of the light bulb that went on for me was there's a set of folks in my network who have very easy access to capital. They went to school with VCs, they're a repeat founder, they were early high profile at some big company, but the 99% of people I meet, they don't fit in any of those buckets. And for those folks, there was no one who was really focused on providing those folks with a great product. And so I said, well, what if I took my interest in working with people really early and channeled that into working with people who couldn't get access to money easily, but also needed less than most firms wanted to write at the time. So sort of this interesting sweet spot Bigger than what you could get from an angel and smaller than what you would get from a bigger institutional seed firm. I felt like there was just a lot of opportunity there. Charles, what do you look for? What, what is it that, that gets your attention when somebody comes to you with just an idea? It's a really interesting question, Randy, because the only thing I can focus on really is that person's articulation of the idea. And what is it that they've understood or learned about the problem they're trying to solve that feels novel, special, or unique. You know, some people talked about, you know, what's your earned secret? There's lots of other terminology for this. For me, it's, can the person tell me a really good story about the market opportunity that they're going after and why they, and they are uniquely suited for going after it? Um, and a lot of times, I can just give you some examples. We have a lot of times people who are mid-level manager or director level people at a startup who've maybe built some tool internally or saw some problem repeatedly in their own company and decided that they wanted to go solve that for a bigger audience. Other times we have people who are maybe employee 1,000 at some startup that's gone on to be super successful. Their sort of employee number isn't one that would enable them to waltz into someone's office and get a meeting. But nonetheless, they've learned a ton about some aspect of a business that they want to solve. And my view is the people I meet who can tell me a good story and get me excited, I assume they will do the same for customers, they'll do the same for other investors, and they'll do the same for employees and and candidates. And so what I'm really looking for is people who've done the work to think through what it is that they want to build and where I think that, let's call it 500K to a million, can unlock enough to solve one of the big open questions about the business. Do you price those rounds or do you come in or are you taking all the, the downside risk effectively? Boy, the, yeah, geez, right? it's such a good question. I wish, <laughs> I wish I could price them all. In most cases, the range of valuation for the kind of people that we're talking about, it's actually pretty narrow because um, mostly the founders we're working with are people who are looking for relatively modest amounts of capital and on average are on the outside looking in. So usually the range of valuations we're talking about, the upper and lower band, it's, it's a $2 million spread. And, you know, the more progress that someone's made, the happier I am to pay a higher price. And truthfully, even at the upper end of that range, both the founder and, and precursor should both do very well. Great. And Charles, a question. Do you syndicate these rounds or are you the only check? Paul, I try to syndicate every single one of them. Yeah, But it's sort of you and Randy have already <laughs> alluded to, 
when you're investing just in the person, a lot of it comes down to other people's subjective assessment of that person. Right. And sometimes I find I'm way more excited about a given founder than the rest of the market is. And one of the reasons we've sort of slowly increased our fund size over time is a desire on my part to be able to provide a greater chunk of the round if it's needed. In a perfect world, we would split. You know, we would take 40% of a round. Another fund like us would take 40% of the round and we would leave 20% for high value angels. That would right. be an ideal configuration for me. I don't get that every time though. What do you end up owning then after one of these is done? Do you own 10%, 30%? Oh, wow. Um, you know, our goal is somewhere in the 5 to 10% range. Um, the model we've articulated to our LPs and that I stick by is we're going to make 75-ish investments per fund at relatively low valuations. And the way I think about it is if we can get really large, multi-hundred million to billion-dollar scale companies without a ton of dilution, 10% initial ownership or even 5 to 7 is usually good enough to make the math work for us. And also, I just know we're going to do the pre-seed. Someone else is going to do the seed. Then Paul's going to do the post. Like, uh, there's just more financing rounds that happen in this environment today. So we're, we're very sensitive to not actually owning too much up front. That's great. Look, we love Syndicate Friendly. We know some of these firms have gotten really sharp elbows, in particular at the seed stage. But you said uh, you tipped your hand on what my next question was going to be. <laughs> 75 deals of fun means 20 to 25 deals a year. So when is it that you ever sleep, Charles, as a sole GP? You've got to talk to us about time <laughs> management a little bit, my friend. Uh, it's the number one thing that I talk to my LPs about. I think it's the number one thing besides returns, obviously, that they're interested in when it comes to our model. And we've built a firm that's really focused on helping entrepreneurs at scale. So the way I think about it is most founders we invest in, they need help with two things. The next fundraise and finding product market fit. The next fundraise, we can actually do quite a bit to help them. With the size of our portfolio, we always have somewhere between 50 and 75 companies in market at any one point in time. Which, which does a couple of things. One, it means I'm constantly reaching out, as Paul knows, to my network to show them companies that I think would be great fits for them. Second, we're getting a lot of in information back from the market around the rounds that are coming together, valuation, terms, what investors want to see. And if you're helping hundreds of companies raise money every year, you get a pretty good sense for what needs to be in the deck, what does a good story sound like. And we can help them a lot of times with that matching process of identifying the 20 to 25 investors that we think are most likely to get excited about the idea. So that's a big piece of it. The product market fit finding thing, honestly, I think that's the founder's job. Our job is to support them with resources. But if I could do it for them, I would. But I don't believe I can. It'd make my job way easier if I could just wave a wand. And a lot of times I would say the, the product market fit finding questions fall into two broad buckets. One are things that I can unlock for founders, like maybe an introduction I can make or a person I can connect them with or a resource I can point them to. But the other half that I really have come to appreciate as valuable is the ability to talk to other founders who have recently solved the same problem that they're dealing with. And when you have a large portfolio, very few problems are truly unique. Right. You're almost always going to end up with at least one or two people in the community who've dealt with the exact same or a very similar problem recently. And man, Paul, have I found that those founder-to-founder -founder conversations are oftentimes more powerful than the conversations I can have with the founders because all the all the walls come down when they're talking to each other as peers. When you're when you're wrong, Charles, when you're wrong on somebody, is there a, 
a, a common thread in why you're wrong? Are you too optimistic? Are you too aggressive? What, what, what is that? And, and how do you correct for that? Uh, as one of my LPs once told me, he said, you're an eternal optimist. I was like, is that a compliment or a criticism? Right. Um, I would say in most cases, when I'm wrong, it's because I'm overly optimistic about the founder's ability to grow into the role of being founder and CEO. Mm -hmm. And most of the people that we back, Randy, they've never done this before. In some cases, they've never even had the ability to hire or fire anybody. And so like, I'm asking a lot of them. I'm saying, I'm going to ask you to grow into this role that you've never had before. I'm going to ask you to figure it out. Not on your own. We're going to support you. But figure it out and be good at it fairly quickly. And sometimes people just, they, they don't. They don't get there. And it's always sad for me because I really want them all to get there. And I go into every investment thinking this person has what it takes to be successful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and do you, how do they find you? There's three dominant channels. So one is our website. So we have three people at Precursor at any one point in time, including me, that are looking at all the cold submissions to come in. And we've, we've made a few investments out of that channel. Uh, we have a couple of hundred founders that we've backed at this point. They are by far our most effective sourcing channel because they're the ones who can actually speak to the experience of working with us and they know what we're looking for. The third one is our co-investor network provides a ton of value for us. And again, when I started eight years ago, there just weren't that many VCs who were like, I want to invest money in people I don't know that well without any product. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would just tell people, if you meet people that are too early for you, they're probably perfect for me. So we get a ton of really awesome deal flow from people we've co-invested with. Got it. Charles, and so one of the things is very similar, even though we're at different stages between bullpen and precursor, is that we are essentially sector agnostic but stage specific. And we'll kind of do anything on any given day, any given geography. Founder didn't go to the fancy school, category everybody hates. I know you love all that stuff too. So talk to me about how it comes out in the laundry. Is it kind of 50-50 consumer or B2B? Uh, is, is, there, is there any magic? Because we found it over and over. It's just amazing. We end up with half consumer, half enterprise by total accident, even though we don't try and do it. I know we've talked about some of this before. I'd love your thoughts on how the portfolio ends up evolving when 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 you're going in a stage specific but not sector specific. We end up with almost 50/50 in every fund with no grand desire or plan to do right. so, Paul. Hmm. And I think what happens is like we're people pickers and we try to meet with as many companies as possible. So usually I'll probably personally do 1500, 1800 a year. The rest of the team will do kind of a similar amount. And what I find, though, is we end up with pockets of talent going after opportunities. So sometimes like, wow, we've, we saw four companies in social audio. Why is that? I'm like, oh, there must be something interesting happening in social audio that's attracting a bunch of attention. So I think what ends up happening is certain subsectors in B2B end up being richer at one point in time than another, and certain parts of consumer end up being richer than others at different times. And so we just keep an open mind and pick people. And Every now and then I get a little nervous. I'm like, wow, we're 60% B2B, 40% consumer. Do I need to change anything? And if I just let the process play out, it always ends up about in balance. What's the perfect precursor pitch? I think the perfect one for us is if someone comes in and tells me, there's this really, really interesting problem that I understand super well. Very few people understand it. It's not big today but it's going to be really big in the next three to five years. Right. 
because one of the reasons it's like not big today is important to me is many of the founders we we back, they're both building a company and building a product at the same time. And markets that are less big and obvious are a little more forgiving on both of those dimensions. So a lot of times for repeat founders, I'm less, I care less about that. If, if you sort of have the battle scars of having done it before, I assume you can navigate that. But a lot of the founders, they end up working in these markets and people will tell me, is that even a thing? I'm like, today it's not a thing. <laughs> My bet is that in three to five years, it will be a thing. I'll give you one example. We went, we were early and pretty aggressive investors in the sort of employee benefits startups. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we did it, I was like, oh, HR is a terrible buyer. You can't make any money here. Where are the companies that have succeeded with this model? I'm like, I can't really point to that many of them. But I think employers want to offer these benefits. They're uniquely offered to provide them. And whether it's Modern Health or Carrot or a handful of other companies we invested in, those have, those have worked out pretty well. But when we started investing in that, in that quote unquote theme, it wasn't a theme. It would just seem like a good idea whose time had come. And a lot of those benefits offerings were really stale. So most of the things we end up doing, it's, it's the person tells me a really great story and convinces me that like something in the environment is changing that's going to make the, the investment feel really timely by the time everyone else figures it out. Charles, are you in Blueboard with us, by the way? Because I can't remember. We're in so many deals together. I can't keep them straight at this point. I'm not in blue board with you. I think last time Ann and I did the math, I think there's five in common, maybe six. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite a bit. Because that one is, I mean, that's that that is that story over and over again, right? Experiential based rewards. Young millennials don't want gift cards or bonuses. They want to be able to go on a trip or go skydiving. And I, I, I just remember seeing the pitch and I thought to myself, man, I'm like Charles on this. Don't show me the TAM slide, right? The TAM slide, like when anybody shows me the TAM slide, I almost know they're in the wrong office to some extent. It's like I, I'm in that Peter Thiel school of zero to one. Show me a TAM that doesn't really exist, but you have dominant knowledge and market share of. Uh, we are really big believers in, in that. And then show me how that market could be big later. But man, I, I, I hate that. T- t- I mean, you got to hate the TAM slide too, Charles. The one I really hate is the top-down TAM slide, which is this market's huge. I'm like, <laughs> no, no, no. Tell me about a specific customer with a pain point. And like, let's invert that process and build bottoms up. But what I will say, Paul, at the stage where we invest, I honestly think the fact that I'm an investment committee of one when you're betting on people is honestly pre-product. It's honestly a benefit. Yes. I definitely make some weird decisions that maybe a really skillful partner would talk me out of, but also some of our best investments are companies that I picked that I'm not sure I would have been able to convince other people to be as excited about. Charles, do you often have founders who you turn away nicely, I assume, given your personality, but come back and, uh, and pitch you again and win your confidence? We have a number of folks in our portfolio that fit that bill. I think early on, a lot of our investors said, well, if you're picking people over product, why do you care about anything more than the people? Why aren't you just mm-hmm. purely you know, bet on the founder? And I, what I've come to realize is a million dollars is not a lot of money when you're starting from scratch. So if you're going down really barking up the wrong tree and you're able to raise the full million, you might not actually have enough time to get to the right idea. Right and have enough evidence to unlock the next round. So a lot of times I tell people pretty clearly, like, I really like you. If you come back to me with a different idea, I will take the meeting in a heartbeat. Here are my 
challenges or issues with the idea. And sometimes I'm just really wrong. They come back and say, you know, you were right, but this thing happened and now the thing you were worried about is no longer an issue. And so I go into all those recognizing that it's a privilege if they come back, like they don't, they don't owe it to me to come back. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also feel like when I first started, we were more like almost 50, 50 idea and founder. Now we're like 70% founder, 30% idea. So I have to like not dislike the idea. I don't have to have like not have a strong visceral. In the, I, but sometimes I'm like, I don't love this idea. I just think it's interesting. And this is above the bar of things that above the bar in terms of being a starting point. Well, given how early you invest, you've got to be a pretty patient man. I mean, you're talking eight, 10, 12 more years out before you can see liquidity and your LPs also have to be pretty patient. So how do you manage that? How do you reserve funds? And how do you uh, measure success along the way? It's probably the hardest thing to do for me is reserves planning because we end up with 75 or in some cases more. We have one fund that has over 100 companies in it of not including crossover investments. And to your point, Randy, it takes five years in many cases for some of our companies to go from pre-seed to series A. Is sometimes a five-year journey that might take three or four rounds of financing. And so we've tried every model of reserves planning under the sun. None of them have worked as great for us as I'd like. And the simple solution for me has been to have really thoughtful, supportive LPs who allow us to do some selective crossover investing. When we do have companies that are owned across funds where we think it's a, it's a smart and safe thing to do, as you all no, it's a dangerous instrument to be, right. you know, you're handing you a loaded weapon, so be careful. Second, we try to focus as much on qualitative indicators as quantitative. So my commitment to our portfolio companies is I will meet with them as often as once a month for the entirety of their pre-series A life. Now, some of them say, I don't want to talk to you that often, or, you know, they raise, they, at pre-seed, they want it once a month, then at seed, they want once every six weeks or or they say, hey, I'll just text you if I need you for anything. And I find I learn a ton, actually probably even more, about which companies are on the way that are doing the right things where it just hasn't all come together yet. And it's, to me, a more reliable signal than just the written monthly update, which has a lot of quantitative information but doesn't give me as much information about, is this founder developing? Are they solving problems quickly? Is the thing we talked about in May no longer an issue in June? Or are we still talking about the thing that we talked about in January and June? There's just all of these like qualitative things I get from spending time with the founders that I personally really value. And we are very fortunate to have LPs that have a very, very, very long time horizon for returns. And I think they, they've all came into this saying, we trust your vision. We think you know what you're doing. And we can wait for the great companies to ripen. And I told them, I was like, well, we're definitely going to need the full 10 years in the LPA for sure. I, can, I promise you that. And, and we, we have a pretty, I think, balanced approach for how we handle the extension years at our fund. But I, I assume it will take 12, 12 years for our best companies to mature. And we're, we're two-thirds of the way there on our first fund. Luckily, right. you're a young, young guy. How do you protect <laughs> yourself from down rounds and pay-to-plays? I mean, you know, obviously from 14 to 20, you didn't really have any of those. Nowadays, you're dealing with the reality of pay-to-plays again. Yeah. How do you protect yourself? We, we've had a couple of instances where we, we always keep a little bit of money in the kitty. 
um, for, for these reasons, and we've had a couple of cases where we've stepped in. We've had a few cases where we've just said, you know, based on what we know about this business, I think the new investors who are either recapping it or coming, they're more enthusiastic than I am about it. Oftentimes, though, Randy, it starts with my conversation with the founder. How excited or enthusiastic is that person about the next wave? Like we have a company that did a pretty substantial, you know, they got all the way to the cusp of the Series B, couldn't pull it together, went down to maybe two or three people. And the founder came to me and said, I'm still excited to run this company. Hmm. And I told him, I said, it is okay with me if you want to throw in the towel now. This is going to be a very significant recap. You don't have to keep going. He's like, nope, I know what we did wrong. I'm really enthusiastic, and he recapped it, and he's he's done a fantastic job, and we participated in that one because he was really enthusiastic. We've had other cases where people are just like, I don't know, like the 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 winds come out of the sail, and it's I can't want it more than they do. Yeah, well, it, just, it reminds me of Odeo to Twitter, of course. That was, and I I always hear about the guys who double down in Twitter. I never hear about the guys who decided not to take the, yeah. the parada. I, so I'd be interested to know who those people are. O- almost everybody else, by the way. And I know who some of those people are. I won't say any names. Uh, but <laughs> but our, one of our good friends who was on, you know, uh, Floodgate was one of the people who said no. Because they, they literally, Odeo basically sent the checks back to the investors. It wasn't like... Yeah oh, do you want to come in? It was like, here's your check. And, you know, Maples tells a version of the story. You know, this stuff becomes legend at some point where he's like, no, 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 I'm not going to cash the check. That's that's definitely the version I've heard. And there were other people on that cap table who definitely did cash the check. Yeah. Um, so, Charles, you talk a lot about, you know, patient LPs. I mean, man, you must have some of the best ever. You obviously have a lot of latitude at your stage. Talk to us a little bit about due diligence, though. I mean, they have to want to know a little bit about okay, Charles, I know this is gut. I know these are first-time founders, but but tell me a little bit about what boxes you're checking so that I, I know you're not completely nuts about this. Yeah, and we've gotten better over time. A, a couple things I've learned about due diligence as a precursor. Probably the most surprising one is that many people who've worked with the founders we've worked with who are not themselves founders are very poor at assessing the likelihood that their former office mate, cube mate, <laughs> Zoom mate will make a good founder. And early on, I used to just say, hey, I'm going to call the person's previous manager. I'm going to call people. On it. What do you, and they'd be like, oh, I don't really see that person as a founder. Those are some of my most regrettable passes. Right. And what I realized is that that question is only valuable when the person making the assessment actually has a sense of what the founder gene and DNA looks like. And in retrospect, I probably relied a little bit too much on managerial references. You can find it a lot with a simple, cheap background check. So we do those. Um, not in every case, but whenever I feel like it's warranted. I'd say the the other thing is most startups that I meet on the due diligence side, there's two or three strong, strong claims they're making. Either company A, B, and C cannot or will not do thing X, Y, and Z. Those, I've been doing this long enough that someone's like, well, you know, well, Google's never going to do this or such and such <laughs> other startups, no good. Those are actually pretty easy things for me to, to reference to the network. And then oftentimes, um, I try to simplify life for founders. I'm like, look, you're raising 500K to a million. There's one or two things we really have to get right here. Are we on the same page about what those two things are and the likelihood and level of difficulty of doing so? And, the, and finally, Paul, oftentimes I just tell people, like, I want the most bare bones, simple version of projections that you have. Not because I believe the numbers, but the direction of... Of, of what you're going to build tells me a lot. Sometimes people say, hey, we've got like 
three, three lines of business in the business model. I'm like, cool, show me how you think they play out over the next five years. Then I'm like, oh, so one of them is 90% of revenue, one is five, and one is five. So really, we have one line of business here, and like, you got one. And so we try to keep it simple. And in most cases, I make our investment decision in under two meetings. Mm-hmm. Well, I love those decks with the 2027 sales projections for an early stage company. You're like, geez, <laughs> how about you just show me this year? Like, if you show me this year yes. and I have some comfort in it, like, I- I'm pretty good with that. Maybe 18 months. But yeah, so so Charles, when somebody shows up, do they usually have a deck at Precursor? Is it sometimes just a conversation? I can't imagine they've got 2027 sales projections. What's kind of an ideal no. pitch or, or, or deck look like to walk in and talk to Charles at Precursor? The things I really want to know are sort of what does the, like, what's the problem? Like what's your, what's your conceptualization of the problem? What's your solution? And I really love to have the solution as like the slide two or three. Because otherwise, if people tell me the problem in the market, then I'm already thinking, oh, here's how I would solve that problem. <laughs> and if the thing I'm thinking about isn't what you've built, then we get eight sides in. I'm like, oh, I wouldn't do it that way. Here's what I would do. And, and we've sort of, we've sort of lost, we've lost the, the thread. I always tell people, if you have traction or progress, pull it up sooner because then everything you tell me, my default belief is it's coming from a position of experience, not a hypothesis. And then I also always want to know, like, what's the business model? Not because I expect you to have evidence of it, but I think the business model you choose influences the product that you build. And there's usually, in my mind, a pretty tight linkage between those two things. And like, not just the business model, but if you're like, hey, we're going to build a really high retention SaaS product. I'm like, great. Then you got to be really great at customer success. Mm-hmm. So tell me like how you think about that. And so in many cases, I'm trying to figure out in 30 minutes, what are the core assumptions underlying this person's business and do I believe them to the same degree that the founder does and a lot of my passes Paul end up being I don't believe the thing that you believe as strongly as you believe it mm-hmm. and I feel like I would have to have your level of belief in this it could be a lot of times it's like you think people are going to pay 250 bucks a month for this and they're going to pay 20 mm-hmm. right and so we're off by an order of magnitude in terms of belief if I'm right you're going to need 10 times as many customers if you're right then it's going to be a lot easier. And a lot of times we're just like, I just, we're not on the same page about this. Hmm. It's not that I'm right and you're wrong. It's just, we're, we're not in alignment. You know, Paul, that reminds me of getting to plan B when I wrote that you're in that book. And we talk about how successful companies are seldom built off the business plans that they first pitched. And what was interesting after that was everybody, every entrepreneur came to my office relieved that they didn't have to present a business plan. And I said, no, 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 you, you misread the book. I, I, do, I want to see a business plan. I just don't believe it. I mean, this is the lingua franca of, the biz, of your business. I need to know what your assumptions are. I need to know what your sensitivities are. I need to know how much capital you think you're going to raise. That's all in that plan. I don't believe a word of it, but I need to know how you think. Right? Yep. It's totally true. And a lot of times what I find that founders sometimes forget is, we're going to look at thousands of these a year. And I'm like, okay, you might be the first company to get to $100 million in ARR on a 500K pre-seed. But you would literally be the first one I've seen. Like, it's possible. But like, and I always tell, like, for example, with hardware, with our hardware investments, it seems to take seven to $10 million to get a functional product. Why? I, I could give you a bunch of reasons. What I know is it seems to take seven to 10. That's like, that's the number across 30 or 40 hardware companies. So when I meet someone who's like, well, we're going to get there on two and a half. I'm like, well, you would be significantly more efficient than every other company. And I, I hope that you are, but you just have to know this is, 
this is the data set that we're working with over here. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned that you're in touch with these entrepreneurs at least monthly. Do they normally have boards of directors? Do they have boards of advisors? Do you insist that they have at least some group of people, even if they're not formally a board, that they are working with in order to make sure that they're getting the attention and guidance they need? I have about 300 portfolio companies. I'm on about five boards. So it's pretty rare. I really want the founders we back to be well supported by their investors. And sometimes, you know, I'm maybe the fourth or fifth most important person in their support. And so to be clear, I don't have any ego about, well, I have to be the single most important voice that you, eh, it's not about that. But what I will say is, you know, I started my venture career in the late 90s at Incutel and boards were just, an they were assumed. Hmm, right. And, you know, I think over the last 10 years at Precursor, I think there are a lot of founders who just said, I don't want a board. Yeah. I don't want people who can fire me. Yeah. I don't want to deal with the hassle. <laughs> and like, I get it. it. It's scary to give somebody the ability to judge your performance. Yeah. And, but I just feel like what was lost along the way was every six to eight weeks, everybody's sitting down and looking at the business together at the same time, but through the same lens. And the companies that where I'm on the board or where we have a good investor syndicate, I can think of at least once or twice a year where the board refocuses the founder in a way that's constructive and helpful and isn't meant to be punitive or make them feel small. Yes. And I worry about companies that I've invested in, and it doesn't stop me from doing it, where I feel like they just, out of fear or whatever, have decided not to put that in place. I just like, gosh, you know, it's so much easier to care about a company when you're a part of the process. Charles, I want to hit on another thing that we talked about. I know you back a lot of first-time founders, as you said, employee, a thousand at a company. There's obviously a lot of conviction here. We know this as well at Bullpen. We back a lot of what we call overlooked founders, people who just didn't get the shot, but quite frankly, they're really good. As you said, their manager said, I never thought of that person as startup material. So talk to me a little bit about what are some of the character attributes? I'm not talking about business acumen because we come yep. from, you know, this whole podcast started because me and Randy were two of Bill Campbell's students. Bill would always talk about blue collar, chip on your shoulder. Like, I love when that person walks into my office. What are some of those kind of softer factors or maybe harder factors when somebody comes into your office, when you're really trying to assess where this person comes from and, and, and if they have it to really go, go make it happen? A lot of times I just try to figure out what's their life journey been like. Mm. I find people who've overcome some degree of adversity in their personal or professional life before oftentimes have some sense for what it takes to, to build a startup and to lead a company through difficult times. The other thing is a lot of times I just meet people where I'm just like, I get it. Like your personal affect or your presentation isn't like super alpha mm -hmm. and people maybe didn't take the, it's, it's interesting. Like I meet a lot of female founders in our portfolio who I just feel like are just generally not taken seriously by either their previous managers or by other investors. And I'm just like, this person strikes me as amazing. I'm really looking for basically intestinal fortitude mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. Cause you know, the zero to one phase, it's so hard. Your parents will probably tell you it's not a good idea. You probably like should have kept the job you had. Your friends will probably think it's crazy. And as you know, Paul, when you're looking for product market fit, there's a lot of days where like 
nothing happens that convinces you you're on the right track, <laughs> right? right? Like, like you worked all day, you made some decisions and like nothing happened. <laughs> and the ability to sort of simply persist and like live with that ambiguity is a big part of it. Mm. And at the end of the day, one of my old mentors that always told me, he's like, you know, you can always try to predict who's going to be a good CEO. You'll find out pretty quickly in three to six months on the job if the person has what it takes. Mm. So the other thing is like, I try not to be too thorough in a sense mm-hmm. or like try to believe I'm too good at picking. I'm sort of like, this person has most of the characteristics that I'm looking for. I believe that when they're forced into the position where they have to do these things, they will rise to the occasion. And for better or for worse, I usually get a lot of data in the first 90 days. Because hmm. with the money, they're going to go start hiring people. So I'm like, okay, what are these? what's this person's instincts on what a good employee looks like? What kind of people are they putting in front of me to try to help them close or evaluate? How how good are they at selling these people and joining the company? Yeah, and I end up getting a lot of. I wish I could find a way, Randy, to get that information before I wrote the check. Like, that would be <laughs> nice. But some of these things are just sort of situational. I put them in the situation and see how they respond. Well, you know, I, I think you raise a good point. We before this session, you and I and Paul were talking about Paul's Paul's penchant for gambling and my family history of gambling. <laughs> but I think what's interesting about gamblers versus venture capitalists is venture capitalists, particularly ones that are that are lucky early, tend to be kind of determinative about their judgment. Whereas a good gambler always understands that it's really just about probabilities. You never know. You never know. It's You manage your business around probabilities. And portfolios are built around probabilities. And if you think about your business that way, you take many bets and you test your assumptions all the time, learning a little here and a learning a little there. And in the process, if you've done a good job, you create a portfolio that has good returns. When, once you get really lucky early and you become very confident and determinative about your judgment, generally that's the formula for long-term disaster. I couldn't agree with you more. And one of the things we started doing here about halfway through Precursors, we do this um, founder assessment where the team and I sit down and say, we just decided to give this person money. What do we think is going to happen? And we say, how much help do we think they're going to need? How good do we think they are at fundraising, cash? We make all of these predictions in the moment of peak optimism. Hmm. And when companies work out or don't work out, we go back and look at them Yeah, and say, what did we think? So we do it the day we invest, we do it at the six-month mark, and then we do it whenever the company sells or shuts down or it gets acquired or whatever. And it's really interesting to see, like, I'm like, yep, I, to your point, I thought there was a high probability that this person would grow into this particular element of the job, and they didn't. Yeah. And that ended up being fatal, and that was, that was what we got wrong. Well, and you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I do think that that's a really good exercise, but here's the danger with that exercise. Once you've been doing this for 20 or 30 years, that exercise defines you. You begin to believe that the correlations are causation and you begin to run your business based upon what turns out to be really very casual relationships between results and and predictions. And so 
you really have to guard against that. You got to stay at the abstract level. You got to keep your learnings abstract and never get too clear and precise because the more clear and precise you get, the more limited you get in your judgment and it becomes harder and harder to take, to be optimistic and take those big bets. It's really important and I'm really glad you say that. And that's one of the things we talk about as a team. And like the goal of this exercise is to figure out if we're making any consistent errors in judgment and if we are to get better, but not to say, hey, we bet on three guys from Google in a row. No more Google guys exactly. ever. They all went to zero. <laughs> exactly. And I think like uh, I tell people like, well, I thought we don't invest. My team sometimes says, well, I thought we don't invest in that market. I was like, well, there's no market that's 100%. And there's no legal market that's 100% off. There's some markets that are just much harder right. than others to succeed in. And the bar's higher, but it's not like we would never do a company in category X, Y, and Z. Right, right. I am confused about one thing. As much as I'm excited about this conversation, when you said that there's a difference between gambling and VC, I totally lost you there. Like, is it, 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 there is a difference? If so, I think I might. I think I might actually need to reconsider what my day job is. <laughs> no, actually, you you bring that you bring the gambler's mentality into VC. You understand luck and you understand that you need to build your portfolio and your judgment around probabilities rather than determinative sort of uh, certainties around the, the 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 various calculus of any particular startup you know you do it in the right way i think most vcs particularly vcs who aren't gamblers don't quite understand that gamblers worship luck you know vcs they they condemn luck because luck somehow right detracts right. from their sense of, of, of accomplishment of self, when they succeed. Yes. Oh, yeah. you were lucky. Well, whereas a gambler goes, yeah, I was lucky and I would love <laughs> to be lucky again. And, and I'm going to figure out how to do that. And Randy, it's, it's interesting you bring this up because a lot of times RLPs will say, well, you invest in all these companies. Like what rules or lessons? I'm like, no, 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 no. I can tell you across the distribution, these things tend to work more often than not. And these things work less often, but when they work, they work spectacularly well. So we do some of those too. And there's always an inflection. Like, you know, I can uh -huh. remember, I mean, I was in the music business in a variety of different ways for two decades. And I can remember when Spotify came in and mm -hmm. I said, I don't think these guys are going to get the global licenses. And if they don't get the global licenses, it just isn't going to work. And there was this debate back and forth, back and forth. And I had just way too much experience. I mean, I had already seen company after company fail because they couldn't get the licenses. And suddenly these guys did. So, you know, there's a moment in time. And I can remember when my partners looked at me and said, do you want to veto this based upon your experience? And I said, I don't want to veto it because I could be wrong this time. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Well, that's that, that's a great story. Look, Charles, we're almost out of time, but I got to hit you up on one last thing. Because, again, in the in the way that you warp time and space to be able to do your job as a sole GP, talk to us about what it's like to raise a fund while you have to do all of the other stuff that you have to do. Talk to us about really about two things. Tell us a little bit about your staff. And, and seriously, how hard is it to go out on the road for you and go raise your next fund when you've got 75, 75 deals in each fund? It's a lot of work. And so um, I don't need to tell you that, Paul. <laughs> you know, I worked at Uncork and I think Jeff did a good job of not making me feel bad about how much additional work he did as a managing partner and what it took to get that thing off the ground. And for all of my emerging manager friends, I always tell them like, there's three, there's, this is a, it's a three job job. There's a capital raising job. There's a running a small professional services firm job. 
And there's the job everyone knows about, which is picking companies. Right. And I tell everyone, like, the running, the running of the company is a big deal. So I have three, there are three of us on the investing team. On the non-investing team, though, I have six full-time people. Great. The controller, I got a part-time CFO. I've got a handful of people who work behind the scenes just on helping me be productive and stay on top of everything. We usually have uh, one or two MBA interns at any one point in time. You know, at, at peak, we might have a dozen people working at Precursor, all of whom have to get paid on mm-hmm. payroll, all of whom have career aspirations that they want to talk to me about and that I'm investing in alongside them, all of whom have work that, you know, trust but verify that they work on, but my name's on the front door, so I've got to make sure right. <clears throat> the things that come out are of sufficient quality and like meet meet my standards. Um, you know, when it's audit season, it's me, my part-time CFO, and our fund admin and audit team. And it's just an enormous amount of work to run these things. And the fundraising side is incredibly difficult because you're always trying to juggle supporting the companies that you have, staying in market, but also, you know, when getting time on LP calendars can be challenging. And if they call you on Tuesday and say, hey, I'm going to be in San Francisco tomorrow at 3, what are you doing? The answer is I'm meeting with you. That's the answer. <laughs> the answer is yes. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, in the same way that founders, com- the answer is yes. And I think in the same way that founders complain that, you know, Paul, you probably heard this, first-time founders, oh, this is so hard trying to fundraise while I'm running my company. I'm like, well, welcome to the, welcome <laughs> welcome to the big to leagues, life. pal. Like, that's how it works. Right. Welcome to life. You don't, you have to do both. And I'd say running a fund is the same way when we're fundraising. I generally will make fewer investments because my head's not as focused on companies and it's better for me to like pour that energy into getting our fundraise wrapped up. But again, we have a pretty narrow team. So most of the data room, it's me and my analysts. We put it together ourselves. How how long is a fundraise for you, Charles? Our first two, our first one was about two years, which was brutal and humbling, but I'm glad we got it done. The second one was like 18 months, but the fund was double the size. Now we're at sort of nine months, Mm -hmm. kind of on average. And most of that is six months getting commitments from our existing investors and then deciding, well, based on what they are willing to provide us with, what do we have left to go talk to new people about? And my guess is when we do our next fund, my expectation is it'll be more like three to six We've gotten to a pretty stable base of LPs. We don't have plans to dramatically scale fund size. So, mm-hmm. and you know, to your point about patient LPs, they're like, we want your fundraise to be shorter too. <laughs> Selfishly, as your investors, we want you spending all of your time mm-hmm. with the companies and less time raising money. I'm like, well, there's a there's a role for you all to play in that process. Mm-hmm. And we, we've gotten to a healthy place, I think. Well, Charles, here's to shorter fundraises for us all. On that note, I really do want to thank <laughs> Charles Hudson for being our guest today on Lunchpail VC Precursor Ventures. On behalf of Randy Comisar and me, Paul Martino from Bullpen, we really thank you for your time, Charles. This was awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Charles. Take good care. Thanks for listening. Lunchpail VC was created by Randy Comisar and me, Paul Martino. It was produced by the great team at Edit Audio. If you want to follow more of our guest journey, check out the show notes. And if you like what you've heard, 
make sure to give us a review and tell your budding VC friends to listen to us. They might actually learn something. Again, I'm Paul Martino, and on behalf of Randy Comisar, see you next time.